0: Hi, I'm Judith Zoe. Welcome to The Digital Period. The Digital Period is a public philosophy project where I, Judith, examine our relationship with technology by taking a closer look at period apps. I'm a philosopher and a lawyer based in the Netherlands and I've been working on digital policy for almost 10 years. In the previous episode, I talked to Iris Mouse, who explained how organizations can incorporate ethics when developing technology. And I talked to Julia Kramer, who talked about the different ways apps track us and what we can do to minimize unwelcome tracking practices on our phones. This episode touches on all the three aspects I want you to look at. Values, technology, and our future. But most importantly, this episode is about autonomy. Because I think understanding what autonomy is, is key in understanding the role of period apps in our society. A better or new understanding of autonomy can help explain why making sure your period app is not doing things you do not want is not just the individual's responsibility. I want to share two conversations I've had with you. I talked to three philosophers, Naomi, Yannick, and Marjolein, all at the same time. They all have done research on period apps and self-tracking technologies. And I talked to Anouch Puri, a postdoctoral researcher at the Tilburg University, about what autonomy means for privacy. I'm really excited about this episode and I hope you will be too. Firstly, we will listen to Naomi, Yenneke and Mario Lein. I talked to them at the University of Amsterdam in a noisy building with squeaky chairs. Naomi, Yenneke and Marjolein study together and are friends and all grew their career within academia. I'm going to let them introduce themselves so that you can distinguish their voices.
1: Hi, my name is Marjolein. I'm a philosopher of technology
2: at the University of Amsterdam.
3: Hi, I'm Naomi. I'm a philosopher of technology at the University of Twente. Hi, I'm Yenneke and I'm a lawyer and a philosopher of technology and I'm affiliated with Leiden University.
0: When I talked to Naomi, Yenneke and Marjolein, I shared with them some audio fragments from earlier episodes, such as the one where Kiara explains how the app made her feel. I feel very alone in this bubble and this app telling you that everything's
1: wrong and also that you can then only pay to find out how to fix it, which <laughs> I've never experimented with, but I don't think the answer is there.
0: And the one where Iris explains why she tracks her period in the first place to better understand me Mm. that's why i have um, a period tracker on my phone (laughs) what followed was a vibrant conversation in which we laughed a lot and sometimes despaired about the state of the world we started with a not so simple question what is autonomy and how does it relate to period apps
2: so is control is the same as autonomy uh, is empowerment, is that actually the same as autonomy or are there sort of overlaps or how should we actually think about autonomy What does it mean? Um, so in my work, in my research, I've been developing that idea. My first research field was uh, self-tracking technologies and uh, when I started out localized this tension between this idea that some parts of technology actually strengthen your autonomy and that some parts of technology actually undermine it. And for instance, in in that particular context, it was about data. So there was this sort of narrative uh, in technology that said, well, if you share your data, you can empower yourself. Uh, And at the same time, of course, in philosophy, traditionally, there were all these texts that said, if you share your data, you're undermining your autonomy. So there was this sort of conflict there, this tension there that was very interesting to see because who was right then, or is there is that just based on a misconception about what autonomy actually means or what it is? So that's something that I sort of researched throughout my uh, my PhD thesis. Like, what does autonomy mean and uh, how can we see it? Um, and so I think one of the reasons why there seems to be a conflict between these different things is because people have a very um, narrow idea of what autonomy actually is, usually. Like, in just in, in common interactions and in the in uh, public discourse and so on, so we often think that autonomy uh, comes down to this sort of very individualistic notion of control uh, where you say yes or no, or where you shape your life based on these decisions that you make uh, and you you have this uh, sort of sense of free will and you can just enforce it and if you're not able to do so you are weak or you should really uh, practice and make sure that you can Um, and uh, of course there's something to that idea, it's not necessarily wrong But there is so much more to autonomy, and that's something that is much less used, I think, in public debate, but that's already around for quite some time now, Uh, let's say roughly the 80s, along with feminist philosophers who discovered or actually elaborated on the idea that autonomy is deeply relational, and that it consists of all these types of social dimensions that are important to take into account. And that if you want to research autonomy, it's not only about self-control, but it's also about recognition about being socially recognized, about self-respect, about uh, social relationships that uh, constitute who you are and that give meaning to your life and that also enable you to lead an autonomous life that's meaningful. And that there might also be, that depends on how strong you want to make this account, but that there might be social conditions for leading a free or autonomous life and that that actually would require a lot of uh, societal changes in order for you to do so. I think that when people talk about technology in the sense of um, optimization and self-control, and you can say yes to this app or no to this app, it's all up to you. That they forget about a whole lot of different dimensions that can get undermined while doing so, or that don't or aren't recognized, and that that actually will lead to technology that's less inclusive. Because if you do accept and embrace a wider or broader or more social and relational concept of autonomy, they will actually need to do something with the technology to make it inclusive and build in, for instance, certain social conditions and so on. So that's interesting, I think, in the context of period tracking. Um, I think maybe the older versions of these apps, I think they have become more inclusive and in recognizing that. But I guess the older versions maybe just yeah, didn't get that yet or failed to do so in a way that makes sense uh, from that perspective. We want to make sure that these technologies contribute to our social relationships and that they actually, because our identities are like that, they're built up of all these social dimensions, then uh, you need to recognize that and make sure that you actually include people and that you ask them what they need. And um, yeah, uh, to make sure that these conditions are there for this type of autonomy. Yeah, I guess. And I think that resonates completely also with the paper that Yenneke and Naomi wrote. And I think maybe it might be nice to elaborate a bit on Mackenzie's theory of vulnerability, just to give a suggestion. But I think that's really nice because obviously Mackenzie was one of the first uh, feminist philosophers to really develop this (laughs) this idea of relational uh, autonomy. But she also developed a corresponding or I think matching or complementing theory on vulnerability, what it actually means to be vulnerable and to sort of uh, be hurt in places where your autonomy will get uh, hurt. And that also these locations or these sources of vulnerability, they are more deeply social than you think. And that's, I think, so that's, that would be maybe the, not the reverse of the medal, but I guess the other side of the story, so to say, that she sort of highlights. And that, I think that in relation to period tracking apps, that's really a, a helpful material there too.
1: I think also listening to, well, some of the testimonials of the people that, that, that you... Um, spoke with, one of the things that I clearly hear that period apps have been doing or you know, could potentially do for users is provide them with unique insights about their bodies as well as mental health. And those insights were not as easily available to them prior mm-hmm. using those apps. So in that sense, giving insight in, in well, in your body, in your in your mental well-being, I think has this um, enormous autonomy boosting effect. It gives you, it gives you insight. It gives you a better understanding of yourself, um, and I think that's one of the beautiful things that period apps or femtech applications can can establish. That it's on an individual level, but if well, taking into account all these enormous data sets, etc. It could give an enormous boost um, into well, the gathering of knowledge and new knowledge about um, female health and women's health needs. Um, and I think, um, well, there are some period apps that uh, work together with universities and clinicians to well, make use of, uh, of, of these data sets and, and really sort of push that field of women health further. And I think that um, could have an enormous Sort of boost for um, for autonomy um, and well, getting to understand and know yourself better on an individual level, but also for everyone who menstruates. Um, so I think that being said, and then <laughs> uh, going back to to um, what Marilein was was telling about how important it is to understand the notion of autonomy in a relational matter. Um, so. You're always situated, you're always in relation to other people, other beings, structures, social structures, power structures, etc. And the question is, I think, how to relate to all those people and things and structures around you and do so in a manner that corresponds with your values, what you find important, how you want to move around in this world and, and what kind of decisions you want to make. And uh, already referred to, to the conception of vulnerability developed by Catriona Mackenzie together with um, Susan Dotson and Wendy, Wendy Rogers. Um, which I think is a beautiful theory, which really nicely highlights that as a human being, we are vulnerable in different ways. So there are different sources of vulnerability, some have to do with our, uh, with our bodies, with our bodily abilities. Each one of us is vulnerable to a certain extent to cold or heat or uh, hunger or diseases, etc. So we have bodies and bodies make us vulnerable. But there are also of course uh, all kinds of social and political sources that make you or a group that you're part of, or a subgroup, um, more vulnerable than others in certain specific uh, contexts. And then I think, especially in relation to technology, a very important source is what they call pathogenic sources of vulnerability. Uh, And these are instances of vulnerability or where someone or something, so for example, a technology, a period app, tries to mitigate a certain vulnerability or ease a vulnerability or help you but instead has the uh, sort of reverse effect that it exacerbates or maybe even creates a new vulnerability. And I think in relation to period tracking apps, you often see that, that people turn to these apps to well, help them, maybe um, strengthen their autonomy, provide them with more insight and in theory the app is able to do so. But because of the certain uh, policy it has on how it collects data or makes use of user data, et cetera, um, or what kind of stereotypical images it's using or in which it engages with its users, um, and actually exacerbates or create new vulnerabilities for the people making use of these apps.
0: I've been having a lot of difficulty with Understanding myself when harms actually occur, when we can call something harmful. Some people that I talk to I think experienced discomfort or annoyance or irritation with their use of the apps that I think you could see as harmful. Also felt that sometimes I thought it was harmful but they actually didn't experience it as harmful at all and then I feel it's very weird to for me to tell them that it's harmful. When do we think harm occurs in these kind of experiences? And when is that a problem for society? And when is it just something an individual should just not use the app? If you can see it through, you know, the
3: lens of, for example, the pathogenic vulnerabilities that sometimes, in some ways, a technology can actually undermine, be it your autonomy, or maybe if you keep it really, like, tight to the example, like, to your view of yourself. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you don't recognize yourself with the, the data that's presented to you in the app. I think in, in that sense, it, it, it can still be harmful, even though, you know, as an individual, as a user, you can say, okay, well, this is really uncomfortable, but, you know, I delete this app, I will, I will research uh, all period trackers, and, I, and you know, and, and I, I, I go on from that. Mm-hmm. But it can still be harmful, even though there may not be, you know, like, The user may not really be victimized in that sense, but I think there can still be harms. And uh, I think a lot of of that also depends on on, on the user in the end. Uh, And I think the taxonomy makes clear that, well, there is still some harm done. And it doesn't take away that that the user may actually be a very autonomous person.
2: Yeah, and it can also, I mean,
3: uh, Uh, so also with regards to autonomy or something.
2: It's not an on-off button. You're not either autonomous or not. Mm -hmm. You're just... It's always a matter of degree or context or uh, levels and so on and um, you can have diminished autonomy under certain circumstances and be autonomous in others or at different times at the same time I think it's also important to recognize because this is something you hear a lot when you for instance ask people about their lived experiences with technologies and I know this from the self-tracking uh, field. people say well it was great using this app because it really helped me Uh, to lose a lot of weight for instance and they feel empowered and uh, in control of their lives Um, and at the same time you can make an argument which is much more abstract which people usually don't experience maybe as a harm or something because it's too abstract but it's still there Uh, and it doesn't mean that you then don't have to pay attention to that just because someone didn't voice it as a lived experience issue or harm or whatsoever it's just that but they do add up as a collective right Mm -hmm. so they do impact society and if you don't install guidelines or regulation or policy or ethical normative rules about that or norms there it will actually mean that you will undermine some of some very important values that are that spend time right that Mm -hmm. we subscribe to over time as a society because we think they're important and valuable and that they support autonomous living on the whole but yeah that argument is always the most unsexy one to make because uh in times of crisis or in times where people are super like i don't know celebrating a technology or something nobody wants to hear about like the values that sort of i don't know like hurt democracy or (laughs) or i don't know like the 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 more difficult things to grasp um so that's um that's I think also one of the, I don't know, one, one of the points I wanted to make about, I mean, paying attention to lived experiences will expose vulnerabilities. And at the same time, I also think that there is an abstraction level beyond that that you should keep in mind, which is more at the societal uh, uh, level, which is much more difficult to voice for people, I guess. Yeah,
1: um, absolutely. I do want to jump in, though, uh, on the question of what kind of harms could these apps
4: uh, mm-hmm.
1: cause. And I fully agree with with Yannicka and Marjolein uh, actually in this sort of fine-grained analysis of what harm actually is and and what you also said. Of course, it's not always as easy to pinpoint, but (laughs) I do think there are some examples specifically tied to period tracking apps. Um, Examples of harms occurred that are super obvious and very serious that we should definitely mention. (laughs) Um, I think specifically, it's also in the paper that We together wrote, we discussed, uh, unfortunately, a well-known example of the ab-natural cycles, which um, is uh, one of the only uh, (laughs) (laughs) FDA-approved periods, um, apps or methods. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Um, Yeah. and they advertise as being this super reliable um, uh, method, hormone-free method uh, for... um, avoiding pregnancy or anti-conception um, and then in Sweden uh, in Stockholm there was uh, a couple of years ago um, an example of a certain um, hospital that had really a large amount of women uh, coming in uh, asking for an abortion mm-hmm. um, all making use of this natural cycles app um, and all really just pop believing that what they well the way they tracked their their cycle that it worked and that's also what they uh, were told by the app and well clearly it didn't and I think this is such a clear instance of harm and especially with what's happening around the world when we look at abortion law it's you just don't want to think about the fact that you live certain place in the world where abortion is either legally not an option, uh, morally, normatively normatively not an option. You find yourself making use of a period tracking app, uh, either because you, well, you believe how they present and advertise themselves, and that it's a reliable method. Or Um, there's no available contraception. Exactly, exactly. Um, And that's one of the things you see more and more, that these apps are replacing other types of uh, anti-conception. So people are starting to rely more and more on these apps, and they are not always reliable. So I think that's a really, really clear harm. There are some like super clear instances of harms that these well, apps can, can cause. Mm. Um, and then there's a whole other category of where it's not always as um, yeah, clear cut, but it's definitely worthwhile to, to investigate. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: From the conversation with Marjolaine, Yenneke and Naomi, it becomes clear that we can understand autonomy as something that has many degrees and is dependent on internal and external factors. Period apps can support us being autonomous by giving us a better insight in ourselves. But at the same time, they can worsen vulnerabilities we might have. Harm can occur, while a person at the same time can feel empowered. This way of looking at autonomy makes us look at the context of not just people and their relation to society, but also to the context of apps themselves and the way they have to operate in our economy and broader society. When we understand that we are not individuals in a void but are interconnected beings, this also has consequences of how we should look at privacy. This is what I talked about with Anoush Puri from the University of Tilburg. He argues that in this day and age an individual right to privacy alone is not enough to address the digital challenges of our time. I discussed with him why he thinks an individual right is inadequate and how it should be complemented by a group right to privacy. I have invited Dr. Anouch Puri to talk about the social value of privacy. I met him at the Conference on Computers, Privacy and Data Protection in Brussels last May in 2023. He was part of a panel talking about dignity, technology and human values. Right after the panel, I knew that I would really love having him on the podcast as well. And I'm very happy accepted. We are at the University of Tilburg where you work as a postdoctoral researcher, and you did a doctoral thesis at the Department of Philosophy at the School of Management of the University of St. Andrews in the United Kingdom. Your thesis focused on the group right to privacy, which is also what we're talking about today. Thank you so much for coming and welcome to the podcast.
4: Thank you so much for having me over. What do
0: you think privacy (laughs) is? And what is the individual right to privacy?
4: The answer to the question what privacy is also depends upon who you ask. If you go back to the seminal article that many consider to be the starting point of the discussion in 1890 when the right to privacy is conceptualized as the right to be let alone, that article was written in backdrop of what was then considered to be intrusive press coverage. But privacy is so much more than the right to be left alone. Privacy is about the stories that we tell about ourselves. Privacy is about who we think we are. It helps us provide that space to reflect upon our values and to develop as individuals. The problem with understanding privacy as only as the right to be let alone is, it places you in this secluded spot where you might be, so to speak, free from outside interference, but then you don't get the opportunity to develop as an individual. And that's why recent scholarship has started speaking about socially embedded autonomous self, and that's where my work also comes in. And the idea is that we should think of privacy in context of the social settings. Feminist scholars have for long been writing about relational autonomy and how we should understand autonomy, not in terms of just first-order and second-order beliefs, but in terms of how our beliefs are a product of how we are situated in the society. And in that sense, privacy is also about protecting the social relationships that form ourselves. And that's one part of the social value of privacy. Priscilla Regan has written wonderfully about this. And the idea is that privacy is not just a right, but one way of understanding privacy is as a social goal to aspire towards. Uh, It helps us form our social relationships. In my own work, I have uh, reflected upon privacy's role in formation of our social identities, Mm -hmm. how it facilitates our participation in social groups. Another way of understanding privacy's social values in terms of how it helps foster trust and helps enable the functioning of those social groups. So the more we investigate and think about what is privacy, it becomes abundantly clear that from a regulatory perspective, we have construed privacy very narrowly. We have understood privacy in terms of protecting identification of an individual. We have forgotten the role played by privacy in the constitution of an individual's identity. And my scholarship tries to highlight that role of privacy.
0: In your articles, you also write about the importance of this in this age, like in the age of mass surveillance and data analytics. Why is it especially important now?
4: So, in a curious sense, I think uh, I'm being slightly cynical here, but I think we should also be thankful to big data analytics because they have helped us understand how similar we are under this garb of individuality and under this garb of protecting what is distinct about ourselves, which of course is important. We seem to have forgotten all that is similar about us. But when an algorithm is looking at us when we are looked at as part of a data set, suddenly our similarities become sharpened. So the movie choices that are being choices within quotes are being suggested to me are not just a function of the movies that I've liked, mm. but movies that people again within quotes like me have liked. Mm-hmm. If our choices as perhaps trivial as movie uh, choices are also being determined on the basis of what other people like, and then also our voting patterns can be determined on the basis of how people who are similarly placed would like to vote, and our democratic choices are nudged on the basis of that, then in that sense, we are perhaps not as individualistic as we like to think that we are. Perhaps we are not as autonomous as we think that we like to think that we are. So what is it that protects us against these nudges? What is it that helps us protect our autonomy against these kind of invasive surveillance practices? The answer is privacy. This privacy is inadequate if it is just an individual right. As part of my work, what I try to highlight is that my privacy will not be safeguarded unless your privacy is safeguarded. From the perspective of various analytics, both of us belong to similar categories, Similar groups. It could be on the basis of our shopping patterns. It could be on the basis of our political beliefs. It could be on the basis of our life circumstances. If that be the case, then the data choices that you are making also impact in some manner Mm -hmm. the choices that I will be making. So, unless your privacy is protected, our common existence cannot be safeguarded. So, that's the idea behind mutual privacy, so to speak.
0: For me, I wanted to find something that was concrete and that allowed me to have this conversation about autonomy with people in a way that would relate to their own personal situation. And that's kind of how I ended up looking at period apps. And I think the concept of autonomy in that is really important. Could you maybe explain more what autonomy is? What autonomy is to you, I guess, or how do you define autonomy within your work?
4: One way of understanding autonomy is in terms of if your second-order beliefs endorse your first-order preferences, the choices that you're making, if you endorse those choices, Mm -hmm. then you can be said to be autonomous. In a relational autonomy setting, as we were discussing, it's not in, in context of you being isolated from influences, but in context of in your socially embedded circumstances, when those circumstances are protected and when you are given that safe space to protect those relationships and develop along with those relationships. But from a privacy perspective, I think autonomy can be understood. When you are not being manipulated, when you are acting for the reasons and beliefs that you consider to be your own, I think that's the key to the relationship between privacy and autonomy. Mm -hmm. But there's even a more fundamental relationship between privacy and autonomy. That act, that feeling that you are under surveillance, it disturbs us. It introduces sense of self-censorship. Individuals who have lived in authoritarian regimes, they have a very acute sense of this. Mm. That you start censoring yourself even without any obvious sense of danger. And in that sense, when privacy fails, an individual sort of does not live in the truth anymore. Mm-hmm and starts to become the best possible play version of what she expects. She thinks that state expects of her. So in that sense, again, when privacy fails, an individual ceases to be autonomous. So it was so interesting when you mentioned in terms of the uh, relationship between the private and the public actors, because in surveillance studies, this is something which has been long focus of how data generated and collected by one private actor could land up in hands of public actors. When Roe v. Wade got overruled, this concern became really sharpened in a deeply personal way, where in the states where suddenly abortion became criminalized, they could seek access to personal data, and that could be the basis of further prosecution. And that led to widespread concerns whether period tracking apps were safe, whether the data should be deleted, whether the apps should be used at all. Now, one question is whether the data which is being generated by these apps, whether that's secure or not. But I think a more personal question is, what is the impact of something like this on an individual when she starts censoring herself in terms of looking after her own personal health needs Mm -hmm. on account of surveillance concerns? I think that shatters an individual at a deeply personal level, which cannot be adequately addressed by data protection. And that's really the relationship between privacy and autonomy that's perhaps a privacy harm that can never be adequately addressed. Yeah. While the implications of data collected are most immediate and most consequential to the individual concern, but the inferences drawn and the nudges which can be made on the basis of the data collected at a group level are of concern to all users of those period tracking apps. And in that sense, we should be concerned both about the individual as well as the collective aspects of the privacy concerns in relation to period-tracking apps.
0: Yeah, it's very much in line with my thinking. Also, in reaction to Roe v. Wade, public debate very much focused on very small things, I think, like the cybersecurity of certain apps or the way consent was asked and the fact that the way they asked consent was not always in line with how we want consent to be asked. I think those things are important, but I think they missed a point about impact a person's life and how they feel about themselves and also how safe they feel it's, it's one of the reasons I'm doing this project. Some of the other concepts also in your latest paper, especially the terms common interests and common vulnerabilities, I think are two really helpful concepts also for policy. Could you maybe explain what you mean with common interests and common vulnerabilities?
4: A philosopher whose work hugely inspired by Professor Joseph Raz. Professor Raz's work in interest theory is remarkable because it helps us balance individual interests with what is otherwise perceived to be the larger public interest. And in that sense, my articulation of a group right to mutual privacy tries to identify those interests that are individual but are also tied to the collective. In order to protect these common interests, we need to acknowledge our common existence. And in that respect, if we have to protect this common existence, then this language of individual rights is inadequate. The part regarding common vulnerabilities comes from the act of algorithmic grouping. We are used to understanding the world in terms of stable ontological entities, even at group levels. When we think of social groups, we are thinking in terms of established entities, in terms of religion, nationality, and so on and so forth. But algorithmic groups are these hyperdynamic entities which take multiple attributes and put people together for, for the purposes of analysis and try to extrapolate patterns that can be used for behavioral targeting purposes. The underlying basis of this is our common existence, but we do not quite understand the way these patterns are being generated, studied, analyzed, and the uses to which they are being put to. Mm. Now, if these vulnerabilities are being generated at a group level, if these vulnerabilities cannot be generated on the basis of only an individual's data, and they would not be used to target only an individual, but a group, then these are common vulnerabilities which cannot be addressed at the individual level. Let's try and understand this with the help of a few examples. So this is from an article in New York Times in February 2012, so more than a decade old. And I think the article was called How Companies Learn Your Secret and its focus is on angry conversation between a father and a store manager where the father is complaining as to why his teenage daughter is getting advertisements related to pregnancy related products. Mm. And the manager apologizes and a week later the manager calls the father again to apologize and this time the father apologizes saying that well he wasn't aware that his uh, daughter was in fact So what the father did not know, what the store manager did not know, but what Target's algorithm knew was a deeply personal fact, which was not predicated upon the identity of the individual, but on the basis of a shopping pattern, because she was shopping for unscented lotions and prenatal vitamins and diaper bags and so on and so forth. Now, these patterns cannot be extrapolated on the basis of shopping pattern of one single individual. Mm. It requires a group. So these are our common vulnerabilities. If you look at this digital circle of life, we are not alone. Our existence and our vulnerabilities are common. The way we exist, the way we perish, the way we take decisions to exist, the way we take decisions to perish. They are all prone to these inferences and our choices are not as individualistic as we think they are. They can be used as data points to influence other people's choices. And hence the individual right to privacy is woefully inadequate.
0: I yeah, agreed and I think, and the other concept, the common interest, is also I think interesting at least f- when I read it, I immediately had to think about people who use certain apps because they promise to share data with um, healthcare institutions, yeah. and for quite some people that I've spoken to, that's a specific reason for them to use the app because they want that there is more um, research on. Yeah. issues related to hormonal cycles, and yeah. there is a known lack of data on that. so that's also an interesting, I think other side of the coin where there is a shared need or a shared interest in collectively uh, using each other uh, yeah. to help others outside of yourself
4: no i I, I think that's a laudable objective, and for users of menstrual tracking apps um, or for any uh, health tracking apps. It's important that this information which is being shared is, to the extent possible, pseudonymized. It's limited, respected that the data will be used only for research purposes and not exploited for further purposes. To the best possible reason, it would be helpful if the institutions which are using that data, those are known to the users. If they're publicly funded institutions, Mm -hmm. that's even better. Now, these are some of the safeguards that we can think of at the moment, which could help uh, foster trust when it comes to this kind of use of data for furthering the common causes. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I really want also people who don't use spirit tracking apps to understand why I think this conversation is relevant for everyone. So why should a person care about what happens to someone else's data?
4: So you're right. If the only way of safeguarding our common interests And protecting ourselves against common vulnerabilities is that both our privacies are protected. Mm -hmm. Then I should be concerned about your privacy. If your data choices result in negative externality for me, then I should be concerned about your privacy. If the only way I can meaningfully exercise my privacy is if your privacy is protected, then I should be concerned about your privacy. Mm -hmm. And all of these statements are true in today's day and age. And that's why we need mutual privacy.
0: And do you already have an idea of what that like, concretely would mean for our legal frameworks, for instance?
4: So one way of thinking of about it is in terms of, so let's say the my understanding of what is social identity is based on Henry Truffle's work on uh, in social psychology, which is the sense of self that an individual derives on the basis of a membership in social group. Now, GDPR already mentions social identity in context of personal data, but it's in context of, again, identification, Mm -hmm. not in constitution of identity. But in some respect, the group component perhaps is there. But we need to expressly recognize how we need to work towards a framework where collective interest is recognized in terms of influences and in terms of enforcement. Similarly, you can think in terms of class action. You can think in terms of enforcement in form of representative action, where an individual is being allowed to sue on the basis of a class, Mm -hmm. where similarly placed individuals might have been impacted because of privacy harms. So those could be some really concrete ways of uh, operationalizing this in regulatory settings. The more our existence is becoming digitalized, I think the greater the need for collective safeguard of privacy, I think,
0: yeah, no, I fully agree. I hope this project helps. I think Anoush's plea for understanding ourselves as socially embedded autonomous beings and what that means for privacy could mistakenly come across as dystopian. It isn't. It is a plea for understanding that we are all connected, maybe more connected than we like to think. Not only our individual differences should be protected, but also the ways we are similar. Anusha's work builds on top of the work of many others, such as his colleague, Professor Dr. Lynette Taylor, who also works at the Tilburg University. If you want to read more about the topics discussed in this episode, I have referenced a number of other philosophers and academics in the transcript of this episode, which you can find on my website, thedigitalperiod.com. This episode, we talked about values, technology, and our future. But more importantly, we talked about a relational approach to autonomy and privacy. A period app, a simple tool on many people's phones, can help us understand ourselves better, on an individual and a collective level. It can help us make better informed choices, but it can also undermine our sense of self, the way we view ourselves, or how we carry ourselves. We might not always be aware of the fact that we are treated as data patterns or as part of a group with certain characteristics. This asymmetry needs to be addressed by acknowledging and protecting individuals as part of something bigger. We need to protect the ways we are different, but also the ways we are similar, so that we are not nudged in ways we did not sign up for. It is essential that we think about where we want to go in order to move forward. That is what we did in this episode. In the next episode, we will discuss maybe the most important question. So where do we go from here? Thank you so much for listening. This episode was made by me, Judith Zoe. A special shout-out to everyone featured in this episode. Marjolein Lansing, Yenneke Evers, Naomi Jacobs, and Anoush Puri. If you want to learn more about their work or the articles mentioned... In this episode, check them out on the digitalperiod.com. And thanks again to Iris van Vermont and Kiara Nowak for opening up about their personal experiences. The jingle was made by Christel Scholtens and me. This episode was made possible by the Alfred Landecker Fund and Humanity in Action. A special thanks to the Privacy Salon and the Conference on Privacy and Data Protection for letting me interview during the conference, where I met Anuj. See you next week. Is there a place where people can find more about you or your work?
4: Um, so I'm a extremely reluctant and almost non-existent user of social media. As uh,
0: most privacy people I talk to. <laughs> uh,
4: different people have different take on social media. <laughs> I personally am not a huge fan. So uh, surprise. <laughs> <laughs>